Today's episode is sponsored by How to Make It, a new book by Chronicle Books. Turn your creative passion into a fulfilling career. How to Make It, published by Chronicle Books and written by photographer and small business owner Aaron Austin Abbott, is the ultimate guide to making a living by making things. Featuring 25 profiles of illustrators, jewelry designers, ceramicists, painters, clothing designers, and printmakers, How to Make It provides a behind-the-scenes look at the daily rituals and best practices that keep these creative entrepreneurs on track. So check out How to Make It. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 111 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about quilting and music with my guest, Ricky Timms. Ricky Timms has successfully blended two diverse passions into one very unique and interesting career. His skills as a pianist, composer, and producer have been evident by the thousands who have heard his music. He's known in the international world of quilting as a best-selling author, enthusiastic and encouraging teacher, an award-winning quilter, fabric designer, and a talented and spellbinding speaker. His innovative and entertaining presentations feature live music and humor combined with scholarly insights and wisdom. His quilts have been displayed worldwide and are highly regarded as excellent examples of contemporary quilts with traditional appeal. Ricky maintains an extensive international schedule of teaching and speaking engagements and is the co-founder and co-host of The Quilt Show with Alex Anderson and Ricky Timms. Ricky is challenged by creativity in all forms and encourages individuals to cultivate self-expression, reach for the unreachable, and believe in the impossible. Ricky Timms, welcome. Hey, um, thank you so much. Uh, it's so exciting to be with you guys today. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very excited to talk with you about your totally unique and interesting career. And I want to start with where you are um, actually in geography right now. So you are in Colorado and you live in a pretty unusual spot in Colorado. So maybe you can just describe a little bit about what your home and studio and workspace uh, looks like inside and out. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> well, um, boy, that's a big bite to, to, to chew on right now. I live, the easy part is I live in basically La Vida, Colorado and La Vida, Colorado is located in the South central part of Colorado. It's a very Southwestern type feel. It would feel more like, uh, what people, if they've ever been to Taos or Santa Fe, it feels a little bit more like that versus if you were to go to Northern Colorado, um, it would feel, I don't know, just a, a different, more mountain lodge, you know, type situation. But La Vida um, is a tiny town of 800 people. It is not a suburb of anything. We're about two and a half hours south of Denver and not very far from the interstate. We're only like 20 minutes off of the interstate. So it's an easy, accessible place. But we're three and a half hours north of Santa Fe. So we're kind of in this little place that we often call paradise. And uh, it got nicknamed Paradise because the, the little town was uh, uh, founded uh, as a fort, and it was called Fort Francisco. And um, Fort Francisco was uh, founded by John Francisco, who was a contemporary of the famous Kit Carson, and it was an Indian outpost. And then the little town of La Vida grew up from here. But when John Francisco settled into this place, he wrote in his journal, this is paradise enough for me. And so that's why we call it paradise. And when we can't get packages delivered overnight, uh, they say, well, that's the price you have to pay for living in paradise. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've so, seen some pictures of the views where you are just like from, you know, the different rooms in your house, you know, out the kitchen window, out the front door. And it's just these incredible mountain vistas. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> indeed it is. We have mountains to the north, mountains to the west and mountains to the south. And the eastern part of Colorado is all prairie. So as we look off to the east, it's just flat. And so we're really, truly right where the mountain ranges begin in southern Colorado. And uh, so that's that's the town of La Vida. And we ended up here um, primarily because we bought 40 acres of land that's nine miles as the crow flies from La Vida and a 28-mile drive on dirt roads around a mountain to get there. 
Okay. And you bought this land, um, it's my understanding, after sort of living somewhere else and having kind of a, a health crisis and a realization that life is short and you should live exactly where you want to live. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is true. Um, I was living in St. Louis, Missouri, where I spent about 12 years um, with a music career. My, that's where my quilting began. And it's where my quilting career, career began. And in the year 2000, um, at the age of 44, I had a quadruple heart bypass. Um, and that was kind of a wake up call. My quilting career was, was new. Um, my life was traveling to shops and guilds to do lectures and presentations and classes. And I realized I could really live anywhere in the country I wanted to. And I'd always wanted to be in the mountains. So after the surgery, I'm like, look, nobody's going to move you to the mountains. You've got to move yourself. So I ended up in Denver and I ended up in Denver because of my quilting contacts. The Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum is in Golden. Um, the Colorado Quilt Council was a group of individuals that I really enjoyed being around. So I had I wasn't moving to a place where I didn't have any associations. And um, but I was also moving to a place where I would be in kind of metropolis, getting acclimated to a new state and a new way of life. But knowing that I was looking for a uh, kind of an inspirational place where I could do retreats and started looking at land. So it took about three years in Denver, but ultimately we found the land down near La Vida. It was a new development. It's in a gated, I would call them developments. They're like 40 acre parcels each. And, um, we bought, we bought pick of the litter and buying that piece of land. We moved to La Vida thinking we would build out there. And that was 15 years ago. And so it, it took 14 of those 15 years to even get a house started out on the land, but it's what got us to La Vida. And we didn't have any intentions of moving to La Vida. It just happened. And then it became, like I said, paradise. Yeah. And you have a quilt retreat you know, a building where you can have and host quilt retreats so people can come to you. Because I know you travel a lot, you go all over the world lecturing and teaching, but people can also come to you and they do. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, in 2005, uh, we moved here at Christmas of 2003. So in 2005, I purchased a building in town. Uh, it's a two-story adobe structure. It's a new It's a new build. It was built in the year 2000. And uh, and it's about 6,000 square feet. And upstairs is where our offices are, our dye studios, our online store warehousing and shipping and all of that. But downstairs is where we do um, our um, quilt retreats. And the quilt retreats are um, limited to 10 people. So it's very intimate uh, week. I say week, it's five days, but it still feels like a week because it's a, a nice long time for everybody to be together. And so uh, while I thought about <clears throat> building the property, building a retreat on the property originally, it is very remote. And so once we were in La Vida, the plan changed it a little bit and getting this building became a great place for our business and also a place to do the retreats. So if people do come to study with me here in La Vida, they will be at the retreat center. We always take field trip out to the mountain property. But uh, but primarily we're staying here in town where they can access the shops and the galleries and the eateries and so forth. OK. And you um, you live with your partner. And does he work for the business as well or does he have a different career? Justin and I co-own the company, Ricky Timms Incorporated, and uh, he is basically the administrator, uh, operations manager. Um, he oversees uh, what few employees we have and kind of maintains the, the accounting and so forth. And he also facilitates and administrates the Ricky Tim's uh, quilt luminarium that we do around the country. Um, so he is in charge of a lot of things with the company. I try to stay on the creative side, trying to create, uh, you know, patterns and uh, products and uh, videos or online teaching things. But he he kind of is the guy that holds is the glue that holds everything together. So, uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. Great. So it's really a, a business partnership and also a life partnership. So um, which I think I think there's a fair number of people who have that, although I'm sure it can have its challenges at times to be um, together in everything that you you do. 
Yeah. I hear those stories and I, and I realize that every, you know, life, no matter how you do it has challenges. So you just learn to meet the challenges the best way you can. Absolutely. So, okay. And you grew up in Texas, which we can hear in your accent. Um, and I, I wanted to he- uh, hear a little bit about your parents. I know your, your mom liked to play music just like you do. Yeah. And can I just go back to say, I can sure. hear in your accent that you did not grow up I in Texas. I did not grow up in Texas. I grew up in Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, indeed. I was born and raised in North Texas. I was born in Wichita Falls, Texas. Um, my mother and father are both from that general area within a county of each other. Um, but uh, I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, music was a huge part of it. And because of my mother and her family, my, in other words, my granny, my grandpa, my, mo- my mother's sister, my aunt, um, they all played musical instruments, and they did more hootenanny type music, or I, I call it that, but it was just good old-fashioned music, you know, uh, Yellow Rose of Texas and the Streets of Laredo and stuff like that, and the gospel songs that they would go around and maybe sing at churches and so forth. So when I came along, I guess the music bug got into me quite early, and uh, my mom realized and recognized, and I guess my dad too, that I had a knack for music and they didn't want me just to be a guy that would play by ear. They thought I needed musical training because they didn't really get musical training, not, not formally. And so at the age of three, I was placed into piano lessons. And at the age of five, I had made a Christmas album. And when I say album, I'm not talking recording one song. It was both sides of a stereo LP. Wow. that are old enough to know what that is um, on organ with two manuals and pedals. And at five years old, my little five-year-old legs couldn't reach the pedals. So my dad had a carpenter build a contraption that sat on top of the real pedals so my little five-year-old legs could reach the pedals. So yeah, so it was, I mean, music was in me since, since before I can remember. And I was reading music before I read the alphabet. Wow. Yeah, right. It's an early on thing. And it was something that you had clearly loved and were drawn to just very naturally. Because when you're that young, it's not conscious, you know, it's just what you what you need to do. And yep. um, and your dad was a truck driver. My dad was a truck driver. Um, he he started out when I was a young boy. He was a barber. He owned a barber shop. But he really kind of had one of those personalities that just wanted to be behind the wheel on a, on a big rig. And he ended up getting a job with Continental Oil Company. We know it as Conoco. Conoco. Uh, he, he hauled uh, gasoline to, to uh, you know, filling stations. But then later he was uh, hauling crude oil from the tanks. And uh, he, he was never a long distance traveler. So he was never gone for days after days after days. Um, he basically was just working one day and at home like everybody at the end of the day. Okay. Um, and later in life, when um, when you started quilting, and we'll talk a little bit about how you sort of first got into quilting, but he also became a quilter, I guess, in his retirement. Absolutely. Um, my dad at the age of 65 was, you know, retiring. Um, he had had some really nice um, awards, uh, safety records with the company. Uh, I, just, I want to just be, you know, I want to pat him on the back to say he got his million mile safety award and he was very, very close to two million, which is almost impossible. Very few people get a two million mile safety record, but they pulled him off the truck 70,000 miles short of two million. And uh, so uh, he, he was a very conscientious uh, driver in his retirement. I asked him what he might like to do as a hobby, and he was interested in stained glass. So I bought him all that was needed to get started in stained glass. And uh, he ended up not liking it. He, he broke some glass right off the, uh, off the bat. He, he dropped it on some concrete, and it shattered and went everywhere. And he's like, I don't think I want to deal with this. So he looked at the bed that they slept in that had uh, a broken star quilt. Um, which, of course, is like a lone star, but with all the extra bits that go around the outside, more star bits. Um, and he looked and says, if my mom can do that at the age of 85, I can do it at the age of 65. So he got my mom's sewing machine and some fabric and started making a broken star quilt for his first quilt with no lessons, with nobody to guide him, 
this was what he did. And he and was, was he was a really accomplished quilter. I mean, I've seen some of the quilts that he made and it's not like beginner stuff. Like this is complex and really intricate and carefully <laughs> done. And there have been a few quilts that the two of you ended up working on together before he passed away and actually were award-winning quilts in Houston. Absolutely. Um, we made a quilt together. Well, and this kind of goes back to his first quilt. Of course, his first quilt is not perfect. Like no, none of ours are. Well, I don't want to say none. I've seen some people's first quilts. No, you've got to be kidding me. But for most of us, we have pretty pathetic excuses, quilts for our first quilt. And uh, so my dad's star had some issues, especially in the center where it all comes together. And many, many years later, he wanted to do a Lone Star, just a one big Lone Star. And so I said, you know, let's do this together. I can design it. I can do the applique. You can work on the diamonds and all of that for the piecing because his thing was piecing. He really never did applique. And his other thing was he pretty much traditional designs. I mean, it was squares and triangles and those kinds of things, but they were done precisely. So we put the, the Dad's Lone Star quilt together and um, entered it. And it won prizes in Houston and Paducah. It won a best of show at a couple of shows. Um, it was, it's a beautiful quilt and it's a family treasure. Um, but we still think, and I just don't, I haven't been proven differently and I would love for somebody to share this with me, but we can't find any significant prize winning quilts that are father, son made. It's definitely you know? unusual for sure. I mean, I've never heard of it before. It might exist out there. And if somebody knows of one, please let us know. But Absolutely. I think it's remarkable and, and yep. just really lovely as well. I think that's a, a what a wonderful thing to do together. Um, so you, you became a musician as we were inferring earlier, you went on to college to study music and then um, so, sort of toward the end of that period, um, all of your original compositions were blown away in a tornado. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my journey through college, first of all, I loved college. I, I loved being a music student. I loved the community I had there. I didn't want to leave college, which is why I have seven years of college. <laughs> You're not alone. A lot of yeah. people do that. <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, I, I started my degree with a with a double major. It was piano performance and composition. And um, and so Somewhere along the way there, I went, you know, I'm not going to be a concert pianist or so I didn't think, um, but I am going to be using my composition skills. And I just felt I could more quickly and easy finish my degree with just a composition major. But you don't finish any music degree without your recitals. And in a composition recital, you have to do a recital, which would be approximately a 50 minute program of music that you've composed. And so I had spent four years of college doing these compositions, everything from a trumpet concerto to piano solos, to uh, choral pieces, uh, to a little string quartet. And all of this would be, was going to be performed in June of, let's see, 1979. But in April of 1979, Wichita Falls, Texas was hit by a huge tornado. It was one of the most massive tornadoes in U.S. history. About 46 people were killed. 5,000 people were homeless. Um, it was, no, sorry, so I said 5,000, 20, uh, 25,000 people, 5,000 homes were destroyed. So a quarter of the city was pretty much wiped out. And my, my, our house was in the center of the storm path, dead center. Um, all of my compositions, which were back in the day before I mean, you had to go to the post office to get a, you know, a copy and pay a dime or whatever for a page. So my compositions were all handwritten on paper with no copies. And mm -hmm. because it was paper and tornado, they were all gone with the wind. And so there was no, there was no composition recital. And then I had to regroup and I thought, well, maybe because I've got all these hours, I'll just go back to piano. So I ended up doing my a uh, solo piano junior recital, but as a performance major, you had to do a junior and senior recital. Well, it was just starting to linger on and linger on. And in the end, um, I ended up leaving college with one elective left to do and a uh, required senior recital. I had everything, all my hours and everything, but I just 
I left to pursue a music career because after seven years, it was just, it was done. Time to go, so right. I, I yeah. 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 Okay. And so then you did work in the music industry and you did a lot of different things in the music industry and had a lot of, um, had a lot of years doing that. And, and then at, um, at, at one point in 1991, living in St. Louis, um, you got a sewing machine. And so tell yeah. us, tell us the story of how this, this sewing machine sort of came to you. Absolutely. So in 1991, I've been in St. Louis for about three years. I had worked originally for a, a music company there, a video animation production company, and I was their music producer and their recording engineer. They went belly up. I put the studio in my house. I had just bought my first house, and now I'm jobless. So I became a freelance music producer during that time, and it was during that time well, basically, I also say freelance is a glorified word for unemployed. <laughs> but, but, um, but nonetheless, I was doing music production still. But in 1991, uh, my granny, who was 83 at the time, and she's the one, my mother's mother, who had played music whenever I was a kid and all that. Um, my granny remarried. She had been a widow for many years. She remarried a fellow that she had known way back in the past. He was 87. And when they married, she went to live with him. So we had to sell her house and get rid of her things. My granny had an old 1955 Sears Kenmore electric sewing machine. Um, I remember watching her mend things and make things on that as a boy. I knew it was important to her. And whenever she left to go with this guy, my mom asked me if I wanted it. My knee jerk reaction was no, I don't need a sewing machine. But I also knew that it was an important thing for her, and I had memories associated with it. So I said, yes, I will take the sewing machine. It was in a cabinet. Um, I could put it in my little house. I could put a lamp on it. It could just be <laughs> a piece of furniture. But I was also two-stepping every weekend on Friday and Saturday nights. So I thought I got an idea to make a Western shirt that I could go two-stepping in. And I went to the fabric store, and I looked at the patterns. And looking at the patterns, I decided, no, this is too complicated with its collars and its cuffs and piped pockets and snap buttons. Um, I guess they're just called snaps. But still, it just looked too complicated. And I thought, I'm going to look more stupid on the dance floor than snazzy. So as I was leaving, I came across a rack of quilt books. It was one little twirly round rack. And I thought, well, that could be something I could do. I could futz on the sewing machine. I could make a quilt. And in my brain, a quilt would be far easier than a shirt because it had to be flat. And now, of course, no, a shirt is way easier in most cases to make a you know quilt. But I didn't know that. So ignorance is bliss. I bought the book. I got some fabric and I started making my first quilt in the privacy of my home with only a book, with no teacher, with no knowledge of a quilt shop, with no knowledge of what quilt fabric is. I just simply started making my first quilt and fell in love with it. And pretty much the rest is history. I want to take a minute now to learn a little bit more about our sponsor, How to Make It, from Chronicle Books. From New York to Tennessee to Oregon, Erin Austin Abbott crisscrossed the country interviewing creative entrepreneurs and photographing their studios, galleries, and shops. How to Make It gathers their inspiring stories into an engaging guide to turn your own creative hobby into a full-time job. Makers featured in the book include Gold Teeth Brooklyn, Jen Hewitt, Knot and Bow, Moglia, Taranishi Studio, and many more. Each maker profile features a Q&A, day in the life, and dazzling DIY project, including hand-forged bangle bracelets, woven coasters, and copper leaf notebooks to spark your creativity. Brimming with practical advice and inspiration, these pages offer guidance and encouragement on the path to creative entrepreneurship. Whether you are an artist just starting out or you're looking to take your creative business to the next level, this book is the ultimate guide to how to make it as a maker. So check out How to Make It, published by Chronicle Books. It's available now. Thank you so much, Chronicle Books. And now back to my conversation with Ricky. Right. And so you connected, though, with a group, a community of people who made quilts. And I just think that sometimes that connection with people who can show you what they're making and introduce you to techniques and 
um, just help support you as you're learning is so important. So, um, so who did you end up meeting and, and what effect did that have? I was driving down Brentwood Boulevard in St. Louis, and there was this uh, strip mall that had a Ben Franklin's Five and Dime, and that's no longer there. But um, I remember seeing a huge sign in the window from the highway that said, quilt fabric, 30% off. And I went, oh, my God, I didn't know there was such a thing as quilt fabric. I mean, what is that? So I decided to go into the store and look and see what quilt fabric is. Well, it's just bolts of cotton fabric, but nobody told me that, right? And I'm back there looking at the fabric and around the corner comes a lady. She's looking at me and then she finally speaks up and she said, you know, what are you doing back here? And I says, well, I'm looking at fabric. And she says, well, what do you do with your fabric? And I says, well, I'm making a quilt. And she said, you're a quilter. And I, and I went, well, in my brain, I went making a quilt does not a quilter one make. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she ended up having a tote bag and she whooshed out this quilt top and she says, what? color of border would you put on this? And uh, we had this conversation. I I suggested blue. She asked me if I belong to a quilt guild. And I said, a what? And she said, a quilt guild. And I I couldn't either quite understand her or I didn't know the word. And I said, what's that? And she said, it's a group of quilters we meet. And I went, oh, wow. I said, I didn't realize there was a groups of quilters. And she invited me to the guild meeting. Of course, I went the long story short is that they embraced me and I fell in love with the people and the community. I learned about quilt shops. I learned there were quilt shows. I mean, the whole world then opened up to me and I was able to get answers to questions that I was trying to figure out on my own. I still say I'm pretty much self-taught, but the truth is I'm taught by all those wonderful quilt friends that I made at the Thimble and Thread Quilt Guild in the greater St. Louis area. And, um, there was a lecture there, right? Um, somebody oh. came to teach, and while you were watching it, you started to make these wonderful connections uh, between it, music and quilting. It was amazing. Th- this was the second Friday night of September 1991. I ended up at the basement of the Presbyterian Church in Webster Groves, where they were meeting. I was expecting, honestly, <clears throat> I don't know, eight or ten quilters to be you know, sitting around a quilt frame just chatting and stitching and I would talk to them and I showed up and there were 250 quilters there and um, I'm like wow and then there was a program which I wasn't expecting and the program was given by Faye Anderson who has a quilt in the top 100 quilts of the 20th century. She was a legendary mover and shaker of quilting in the 80s and early 90s and she was giving a lecture and her lecture was so fabulous. It was on the design elements of art, of art and uh, the principles of design and how quilts use those principles. And I, I had taken some art courses, but nobody had kind of ever gone through all of those different things. And as she would go through an element like line, I would go, my gosh, that's what I do as a composer. I have a line that takes the viewer on an aural journey and a visual artist uses line to, to point and lead people through the frame. And, and then she would talk about color. I was sorry. Yeah. Color and how it creates moods. And you can have this mood that's very uh, somber or a very cheerful. And I went, that's what I do with harmony. And I started seeing the parallels between music and uh, quilting or art. And I started formulating like, Oh my gosh, I could do a, a lecture on how these are parallel. And I ended up eventually doing this lecture called The Music in My Quilt. And I needed a piano or keyboard to play some little snippets of music to show these parallels. And that's how my music got embedded into my quilting experience. And to be able to say, you know, I've been a musician forever and I didn't give it up to do quilting, I incorporated it into my quilting And I'm, you know, it's, I don't know, it's the best of both worlds. It's been an amazing journey. Yeah, I think it's so unique. And I, I don't know, do you know of anybody else who does this, who sort of um, talks about the interplay between music and quilting or who performs music or even singing and sort of shows the inner interconnections between that Uh, and quilting? not in that particular sense. I don't. I'm not saying it's not out there, but I I just don't. I know that there are other musical quilters out there 
that do entertaining, you know, lectures or concerts and so forth that are related, but not from a necessary an educational standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of at the stage of my life now that I would really love to do this kind of a lecture in uh, universities across the country to music students and art students, the fine art students, you know, to talk about how these parallels cross exist and to also give some insights into how your fine arts career can be a reality. And it may not even be the reality that you're taught in school, because I was kind of under the impression as a musician, I would be a private piano teacher. I would be a concert pianist. Or if I was in education, I would be teaching band or choir in a school. Or if I wasn't in a school, I was doing church choirs and so so forth. That was kind of the limit limitations of it. But the reality is there's far more opportunities for musicians, but also for artists there's far more opportunities than just being an artist that's trying to sell your work because that can be pretty uh, scary too. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I just think it would be great to be able to, to speak to these, uh, to these young people that way. So anyway, that lecture still sticks with me and I love, I love doing it. Yeah. Tell it. So describe now when you travel um, and you, you give lectures sort of for somebody who's never been to one, um, what does it include? You, it's kind of like, you call it kind of like a hybrid lecture performance, um, which you know, is an interesting idea. So, so how, like, what are the elements of it? What does it well, include? Uh, all right. Well, first of all, I need to probably clarify that there's different things on the menu. <laughs> okay. So depending on what that menu is that, uh, that has been selected is how the, the, the thing's going to progress. If I am doing a, let's say if I'm doing a musical music in my quilts lecture, it's an entertaining but somewhat very, very educational thing. And I am focused on doing what I just told you with the comparison of art and music. Um, but if I am doing what I call my concert, my concert is pretty much an entertainment. It's very quilt centric because my stories, I do storytelling and music. And I would say it's 50, 50 or 60, 40. Um, the storytelling aspect is a huge part of it because it's not only stories, but they're they're intriguing and they're funny and they're whimsical. And I, I try to do my best to get people you know, laughing very hard. But I also want it to be very inspirational where there's poignant moments where the message all comes together um, to give you know hope and inspiration. But the music is inspired in there with full songs uh, you know, where I'm performing and doing all of that. So if I'm doing a a kind of a concert presentation, it's that. But if I'm doing my more, I guess, intellectual lecture type thing, it's, it's not, it's not nearly uh, performance driven. It's it's more educational driven. Okay. And And are you bringing your quilts with you as well and having those on display too? I always bring some quilts. It's impossible to bring all of them, but um, I try to bring quilts that relate to what I might be teaching because if I'm going if I'm invited somewhere and I'm doing, let's say, a one-day master class, which would be a four and a half hours of sessions split into three uh, one and a half hour individual sessions, um, I know what I'm going to be teaching that day, and I'm I'm not generally in those incorporating the music. Those are usually quilt centric, um, so I know what I'm going to be teaching. And I try to bring quilts that are examples of those topics that I'm going to be covering during the day. Mm -hmm. I also probably should just mention that I, I really cannot recall the last time I've done a hands-on sewing class on the road. Uh I do hands-on sewing here in Levita for my week-long workshops or my five-day workshops, but I do not do that on the road because if I'm going to travel somewhere, I don't want 20 people in a class with 30 people on a waiting list. I want all 50 people sitting mm-hmm. in that room learning. And I, I've learned that if I take the sewing element out of the class, remove the they've got to be doing it, I can teach more information to them. I can get more information transferred from my head into their head than I can if I'm just going to say, well, now you're going to sew this thing and I'm going to walk around the class and have nice conversation with you while you sew this project. And they finish the day with another unfinished project. And they've learned a fun two or three things, but in the reality is I've, I'm not getting them the information in their head. So I do lecture demo presentations when I'm on the road. I'm still available to shops. I'm still available to quilt guilds to do that, 
but it's really not a hands-on class situation. I see. Yeah. And it, that also just makes sense from a business perspective too. I mean, it makes sense from an, an educational perspective, because as you're saying, you can get more information into people's hands and heads um, through just performing and lecturing and showing slides. Um, yep. But also because sewing is very um, time intensive. And so, you know, th- that's a whole different it, kind of class. It, but from it, a business perspective, a better, it is, it's a better good use of time. And yeah. when you say from a business perspective, that's right. Because if I'm working with a shop, if I have 20 students in that class that day and they're right. spending all of their day sewing, they're not making very many purchases. But if I've got 80 students or 100 students in that same shop all day, there's going to be some breaks and they're going to do better as a shop that day. I mean, it's just, it is, it's better all the way financially, yeah. but it's also better educationally. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I mean, nobody's going to be Ricky Tims, but I think a lot of people listening, you know, do want to teach and want to go to guilds and go to shops and teach and are struggling to figure out a way to make it work for them financially. And it is an interesting thing to think through about what you can do to have more people there and there longer um, and just make it worthwhile all the way around for the students, for the shop and for you. So, um, so that's interesting to hear how you've, how you've evolved your idea. Cause it sounds like back in the day you did, you did teach actual hands-on sewing classes on the road. I, I did. And then of course, in that one class, let's say I'm teaching harmonic convergence on that day. They're looking at my quilts and going, but how did you do this binding? And how did you do this applique? And how did you do, and do you use stabilizer for this? And what kind of threat, you know, and all of these questions are being fired at you that have nothing to do with that class. And if I stop and talk to that one person about it, I feel like there's 19 people in the class that's not getting the answer. So I kind of got smart at some point and said, okay, look, at the, at the end of the day, we're turning off our sewing machines. We're going to circle the chairs. And in the last 30 minutes, you can fire any question at me you want. I'll answer it the best that I can. And that way, everybody in the class is going to get the benefit of that answer. And it was when I learned, they learned more. They learned more during those last 30 minutes than they learned all day long working on a little project. Mm. And that's when I said, look, I'm taking the project out of the mix and I'm going to spend the day teaching and let them learn and not just work on a project. Right. And as long as to go home and work on a project. As long as they're clear up front, like what to, what to expect so that they're not expecting that and they know what it is going to be. Um, I think you're totally right that they benefit more from hearing from you and being able to talk with you and learn from you than to sort of you know, have that hands on. So, and I also just think it's really an important point to be able and willing to evolve and to sort of notice what's working and not just stick with the old formula. Right. And I've done that within the last couple of years. I continued to try to evolve and say, well, that worked for about eight or nine years. I'm now need to switch and change and evolve and try some new things. And that is really important to anybody's success. And how do you feel about um, I mean, you're a little bit of a rock star <laughs> um, and uh, and I don't know how you feel or how you manage, um, I don't know, some of the kind of fangirl, you know, sort of hype that can happen where people are sort of going crazy um, when they finally see you or get to see you in concert. And I don't know, what is that like for you? <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm an I'm an old guy now, so I don't feel so um, rock starry uh, at all. <laughs> um, I do I do? Here's the thing: uh, it's, it's how do I even talk about this? Number one, I appreciate very much when people connect with me on some level, admire me, respect me, or or want to be in the room you know, with me for a lecture or concert or whatever. I, I, that means a tremendous amount to me. Um, I personally, and I'm going to try to wax eloquent. I personally want to inspire, motivate, encourage, and entertain as many people as I can with the life I've been given. So I don't care about celebrity from fame standpoint. I appreciate celebrity because it allows my voice to reach more people and therefore make me feel like I've done a, I've been a better steward of the talents and gifts 
that I've got. So I enjoy and appreciate a giddy person that's like, oh my God, I can't believe, I'm, can I touch you or something like that? You know, I, I appreciate that. It does not make me thrive. Um, it's not what I seek. Um, I, I love Lady Gaga and the song, I live for the applause, 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 but I do not live for the applause. I live to try to inspire and encourage people. And if the fallout means that they're excited and they got inspired and we can have a moment of laughter together, then that's fabulous. But, uh, you're right. Sometimes it is challenging to be at a big quilt show and just try to make your way from the booth to the bathroom, um, without stopping and having to do four or five autographs. But if those four or five autographs meant something to those people, then I'm willing to stop and allow that too. Because it's we're all in it together. And is it also weird that the celebrity is really in this, I guess you could call it like a niche audience, right? So within quilters, I can't imagine there's somebody who doesn't know your name at least and know who you are to some degree, like have some image in their mind of who is Ricky Timms. But outside of quilting, I would imagine the reverse might be true. I mean, there might be people who followed your music career prior to quilting, but other than that, you know, it's not the same as being Lady Gaga, right? Like everyone and, and knows Lady Gaga. Wonderful. Isn't that the great thing that I can go to a quilting event and be Ricky Tim's the quilter guy, but I can come home or I can, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have to worry about walking through airports. Now I will tell you a funny story that happened because, uh, you know, at this point, a lot of people do know Justin and are associated with Justin. And let me just kind of, for those that don't, they can peg him this way. Um, because I do do the quilt show, and we may talk about that in a minute, I, I co-host the online television show with Alex Anderson, uh, thequiltshow.com. Justin does the cold open at the beginning of every single one of those episodes. So he has, you know, 45 seconds or whatever that opens every show. So there are people that know Justin visually, you know, they recognize his face just because of that. And a few years ago, we were in Las Vegas and we were in Paris playing shots, slots. And somebody, some quilter recognized me and they kind of got all apprehensive. They didn't say anything to me. They looked over an aisle or so and saw Justin and they went, oh, I can go talk to Justin. So they went over and talked to Justin, you know, got all excited talking to Justin they didn't want to bother me because they didn't want to intrude in my vacation, but they didn't have any problems intruding in Justin. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> anyway, um, so Justin told me the story and it was, it's really funny. So there's been a few times I've been recognized sure. after that for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Lovely anonymity. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of get the best of both worlds of being famous and being anonymous in different yeah. milieus, depending on yeah. where you go, um, which can be a little bit of whiplash maybe, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still a good thing. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about the quilt show, which is, I find this to be really interesting because you basically, you have a, a really high production level television show. It's not just like, you know, a little YouTube video that you're filming with your phone or something like this. This is like, kind of like PBS quality, you know, production value if people haven't seen it, um, just so they can kind of get an idea in their mind of what it might look like. Um, and you, you, you're you together with your co-host, Alex Anderson, who's also a, a very, you know, well-known, long-established uh, quilter, quilt celebrity. Um, so how did you first meet Alex? And then how did the two of you come up with the seed of this idea? Oh, my God you're asking so many, this is like, how many hours do you have for this podcast? <laughs> um, all right. So when did I first meet Alex? I first believe I met Alex face to face on Simply Quilts, um, where I was invited to do an episode. But that's one of those, you, you come in, you say hi, you do the show, you leave. But Martha Pullen did a, a quilt something, I don't know, Academy or something, down in Huntsville, Alabama, and invited me and Alex and Libby Lehman and Katie Pesquini. And there was about six of us down there at the time. And there were three lectures on one particular day. And Libby Lehman was the morning. I was the early afternoon. And Alex was the evening. 
Now, I will tell you, I've never had this experience since then, but it's worth mentioning. There were 800 people in the auditorium. I'm lecturing, doing my typical Ricky Tim's dog and pony show with quips and storytelling and jokes. I had, get this, eight standing ovations through the lecture. Wow. I mean, I would say something, punched a button, and these quilters would go <laughs> cuckoo and stand up and hoop and holler. And it was an amazing day. And Alex was there, um, of course, because we had now we're starting to get acquainted because we're at the same event. And she came up afterwards and she says, that was fabulous. Alex and I are, are getting acquainted through the day. And she comes up to me afterwards and she's complimenting me on the event and so forth. But Martha Pullen was standing right there. And Alex looked at Martha and said, if you ever put me after Ricky Tim's again, I will never speak to you, <laughs> you again. So, um, so we got to be good friends, and then just kind of jumping forward, um, simply quilts ended, and people need to know that that's a choice by HGTV. They are the ones that buy the content. Simply Quilts was produced by Weller Grossman. So Weller Grossman had a product to sell, but whenever HGTV didn't want to buy that product anymore, they had to stop making the show, which meant Alex was basically voted off the island, and so she didn't quit. She didn't end. That's just the way television works. Yeah. She was done because the producer couldn't make the show anymore. And when that announcement happened, it was coinciding with a marketing group that was looking at me saying, look. Ricky's a little different. He's a different anomaly in the quilting world. He needs to be in front of a camera. He's an entertainer. He he does that kind of thing. We need to make a television show. And I went to Bernina. I asked Bernina if they would be willing to underwrite a pilot for a new television show with a new kind of a spin. It had an entertainment value to it and so forth. And that we would shoot it in front of a live audience, which had never been done before. They said yes. And I then got the news of Alex's uh, dismissal from Simply Quilts. So I, I talked to her. We had, we had had conversations in the past. She actually called me on a different matter, and I said during this conversation, how would you feel about doing a show with somebody? You've been on your own for a while, but would you feel okay in front of camera with somebody else? And she said, what have you got up your sleeve? And I told her. And she says, well, we need to do a screen test. We ended up doing a screen test together, and it was magic as far as she understood. I knew what I was doing, and, of course, I knew what she was doing. But then we also didn't think that it would be good for a network because we'd be on at 3 a.m., and we would be canceled again in another year or two or something. So it was right on the birth of really delivering video on the Internet. I said, look, let's do it on the Internet because we can never get canceled. What year was we this? Was this was in 2007. That was really early on. You had some foresight. Yeah. Honestly, and I'm going to, I know this is going to sound crazy, but other than porn, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that we were the first ever fully produced, you know, video product for the internet. I mean, it was I mean, definitely early. Yeah. And, and, and not just a little YouTube three or five minute thing. We're talking fully produced four cameras are, Producers have been with Oprah. Our editors have been with Oprah. This is a high-quality production, and it was done specifically for the Internet. And that was so that we could be seen worldwide anytime, day or night, and we would own the company and not be canceled. And now we're going into our 11th year. That's and amazing. That's, so that's so how did you support this? I know you had Bernina underwriting, so that's one way to support it. But there's a membership subscription model as well. Absolutely. And both of those are in tandem and, and work together to keep our heads above water. Um, we, we are not rolling in the dough from this endeavor, but we are certainly thrilled that we're able to keep it going. And um, so the subscription, I believe, currently is like $49 for a year, which is pennies you know, per day or dollar per week or something like that. And, uh, and not just for the show, but it gives them full access to things like our block of the month, which in and of itself is well more valued than forty nine dollars, mm -hmm. so they get a lot of perks from being a member. They get savings on shopping in our store. They can easily and very quickly recoup their forty nine dollar investment just by participating on the site. 
That's really a really neat way to support it. And I think subscription and membership model, again, you had a lot of forethought or a lot of foresight and sort of figuring out a way to make this work financially. Um, because if you started it today, that's what I would recommend you do. Yeah, so it, it was it was not an easy sell at first because people were saying, what do you mean you're going to make me pay for something on the Internet right. when I can watch the television for free? Well, you can't. On those shows, you're buying cable and you're paying a really expensive cost for cable. But more importantly, people don't really understand the cost that it takes to put that kind of a website together. And they don't understand that bandwidth, especially bandwidth to deliver a video, is a lot of bandwidth when you're talking, you know, thousands of people watching, we have to pay for that. And their, their membership does not even cover our full expenses. If it wasn't for our shop sales and our, our, you know, our site uh, production sponsors, we would, we would really struggle, Mm -hmm. very struggle. But I'm I'm guessing, though, that the video product having the quilt show does a lot um, sort of of intangibles, like provide you with a lot of things that, you know, ability to reach an audience for people to see you and get to know you and see your expertise and all the guests that you bring on and that kind of thing that maybe you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. A hundred a hundred percent. All of that. Yep. Yeah. So even though it may not be something that's a big cash cow, um, at least it's sort of, um, it is working financially, plus it it does so many other things. So- it does so many, many other things. And there's, you know, there's, I would call it fallout. There's, you know, side benefits right. from it. Um, not the least of which in 2012, I did a 13 country tour in 57 days. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What was some, what were some of the places that you went that were truly a highlight? Well, I mean, of course, Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, Germany, um, England, Scotland. I did all of those. But the ones that I would that really stand out as unique to me is I taught in Moscow, wow. uh, in Russia. And then I also flew over to Kazakhstan and Almaty. And to know that there's like quilters in Kazakhstan that have a clue who I am just because of this still television program that has reached that far. Right. Um, and I, you know, kudos to Bernina International for organizing this because they have what they call emerging markets where places like Kazakhstan is an emerging market. And it's also a country that's filled with haves and have nots. So um, there's extreme, you know, poverty, I would say, or just very, very socially income, low level, mm-hmm. you know, people, there's also people that are the haves. And, um, I was stunned over there. Uh, they had like national, well, I suppose it was national, but at least the news, the news people from Almaty came out to do a, an interview with me. And it's like on television, here I am on television in Kazakhstan. Wow. It's just, I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And, and a blessing at the same time. So Yeah, what a neat experience for you to have. Just a life experience that, you know, came from this and and um is such a rich, you know, experience for you to have in your life. So it, it absolutely is. Yeah. And are are you a religious person? Is faith an important part of your life? I think faith is an important part of my life, but I will say that my viewpoints and my opinions on faith have really changed over the years. Um, but faith is kind of the nucleus for it. Um, you know, I conducted church choirs, um, um, in Baptist churches. Uh, my last post was in a Presbyterian church in St. Louis. And I remember, um, I remember that in order to take this position as their choral director, they needed me to be Presbyterian. So I had to go through the Presbyterian classes you know, and the confirmation classes. And then at the end of it, I'm kind of supposed to, you know, verbally or whatever, sign on the dotted line that I have endorsed their theology and their doctrines so that I could be, you know, deemed Presbyterian. And then they could officially hire me for the church. And I remember whenever the guy who was the associate pastor, and I really did love the guy, he was a great guy. He sat me down in my office. I was already kind of working part-time there and 
he said, all right, you've you know finished the classes. Do you leave what we leave? Are you ready to be a Presbyterian? And I said, you know, this is how I look at it. And I'm by, by the way, I'm not trying to offend anybody by what I'm about to say, but it's really where I'm coming from. I said, you know, at least on the side of Christianity here, there are it's based in the Holy Bible. And there have been theologians that have spent their entire lives doing nothing but studying the original scriptures and the original languages and trying to decipher what this doctrine is and what that doctrine is. And we believe this thing and that thing. And as a result of these very, very educated people, we have Lutherans and we've got Baptist and we've got uh, evangelicals and we've got Catholic and we've got Presbyterian and we've got Methodist and they all believe something different. And all of them have delved to the deepest, deep depths of all of that scripture to come up with their doctrines that make them unique. And I said, the, tr- the bottom line for me, and this is going back to your question, Abby, mm-hmm. the bottom line for me, it's about faith. And if I know all the answers, if you've already figured it all out and you have all the answers, you don't need any faith. And I says, I don't have it figured out and I don't know all the answers. So I do need faith. And if you still want me to be the music director of this church, then hire me. But that's mm-hmm. the best answer I can give you. And did, what did he say? You're, I mean, I'm hired. You know, what can you say to that? <laughs> I'm glad what he, can you say to that? Yeah, I'm glad he took that idea. Uh, I'm glad he I'm glad he wasn't like, you know, insistent that you sort of play yeah. by the exact rules that he'd set forth, because I think that that's a really, I don't know, it's a really deep sentiment and it clearly comes from your heart. And so I think that that was that was a wise move on his part. And it's, I think yeah. that both religion and faith and all of that is a it's a real rough thing these days because there are radicals in all faiths that do bad things. Yeah. And there are great people in all faith that do wonderful things. That's true. And uh, I just think it's just really unfortunate in our world today that things have gotten so out of whack when it comes to both religion and faith and spirituality. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, and I wondered whether being gay has ever been challenging for you in the quilting world. I feel like in the music world, I don't know, people are a little bit more accepting of different lifestyles, of people being who they are. And, and the quilting world sometimes, not always, but can feel a little bit more conservative, um, small you know, C conservative. Um, it's not been an issue at all for me ever. And, and I'll say that up front as far as my career in the quilting world. If it has ever been an issue and I've not been hired or somebody opted not to come study for me, they kept it to themselves and I am 100% unaware of it. So uh-huh. I am saying uh, carte blanche, it has never been an issue. Now, I need to say personally, it's been a huge issue. Um I was born and raised in a conservative uh, area and learning to be true to myself and accepting myself and not trying to hide or, you know, secretively, uh, hopefully deceive the quilters. That was a real challenge for me early on. Mm. I, I, I think it was more internally uh, difficult than it ever was. And honestly, even though it's a subject that we're discussing right now, it is a 100% non-issue in my life. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, it doesn't define my art. It doesn't define my teaching. It does not define my inspiration uh, or my my desire to inspire. Um, It does not keep me from wanting to motivate people to be better people. So there's, and it's kind of even goes back to when I'm asked, what is it like being a man in the quilting world? Mm-hmm. I, I That question itself, it's a non-issue for me. Yes, I am a man, but I don't create art as a man. I create art with my brain. I inspire people with my brain. I try to motivate people with my brain. And so it's not a male thing or a gay thing. I'm a quilter. I'm a human. And the labels that we put on people, unfortunately are the labels that cause so much, not diversity, because we need a world that's diverse, but we have those labels that 
um, divide. That's what I'm trying to say. That suddenly divide this group into that group and this faction into that faction. And I don't want to be a male quilter. I don't want to be a gay quilter. I just want to be a quilter. Right. Yeah. I just want quilt, and you're just you know? a human being. And I think that that's a wonderful way to put it and a good way for people to think about it too. I certainly, you know, that's how I, I'd like to, to think about it too. Um, and so I, I really appreciate your honesty and talking a little bit of, about that. So um, and, and I did want to ask um, one other question before I, I get your, your recommendations, if that's okay. So um, I wanted to ask about your hats, because I noticed that when you're performing, you're often wearing what I would describe as like a, for, forgive me for my ignorance on hats, but like a cowboy hat. Yeah. Um, and then when you're not performing, you're often wearing like a baseball hat. So do you have a yeah. lot of different hats? <laughs> Well, I guess I live a life with a lot of different hats. That's for sure. <laughs> Figuratively. Both. The thing of it is, is that I, I, because I'm a Texan way back in the day, um, part of that whole Texas persona, I would wear a cowboy hat to do my, you know, to do, to my gigs. Um, it, the hat in my promo, my promo pictures, I had a cowboy hat. So the cowboy hat kind of became part of the brand a little bit. Okay. I don't want to say a hundred percent. But I can tell you, if I get off an airplane somewhere and somebody's meeting me and I come out of the gate and I don't have a hat on, the first words out of their mouth are, where's your hat? Because they're looking for a guy walking off the airplane with a cowboy hat. Mm. So when I'm out being traveling and professional and so forth, the hat goes with me. I try to make it so that, you know, people can take their picture with me anytime. But generally, they go, put your hat on. I want a picture with your hat on. So I take the hat with me. But um, the cowboy hat... Um, it's more cumbersome in my day-to-day life. And honestly, as people probably know, I don't have a lot of hair up on top. And um, so therefore it's cold and the sun's on it. And I just don't like that. So I keep a ball cap on even when I'm in the house because it just helps me keep my hat, my head warm. I also wear little toboggans or little sock caps, you know, but mostly I'm in a cap and a, a ball cap. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to come to La Vida and be in my workshop or, you know, be around me kind of in my day to day, I'm probably in a ball cap. Right. I, it's uh, kind of like your costume in a certain way. Like as a performer, you know, it's, it's like when you put it on, you're like the Ricky Tims. And when you take yeah, it off, yeah. you're you, you know, which is, yeah. I don't know. I think there's something to be said for that because you're on and you're off You're You're a certain public you and then a certain private you. A little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, you know, I told you about Lady Gaga a while ago. I watched the five foot two a documentary recently and I, I do love her. I think she's a wonderful, real person. And in that documentary, we see real Lady Gaga. We see her walking around in cutoffs and a t-shirt and her hair, you know, pinned up with little brets and stuff. And we don't see the Lady Gaga that's all done up with the latest fashion on the front cover of a magazine. And it's the same kind of thing. You know, part of what I do is a little bit of theater. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just you, you, when you're on, you're on and you're not, I'm not being fake ever right. to no. anybody around me. It's just, this is my public working per, persona, not persona, so to speak, but my appearance versus, um, when I'm being casual. Yeah, absolutely. Like right now, Right now, just to give you an idea, I've yeah. got house shoes on. I'm in some lounge slacks that my um, niece made for me at Christmas, and I'm in a T-shirt that says Budapest. And no hat or just baseball hat? No hat right now because I haven't been out of bed long enough to put a hat on yet. <laughs> okay, great. And um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna count your Lady Gaga five foot two documentary as um, one of your recommendations. But I always ask people at the end of the show to just recommend something that they're really enjoying right now, something they would recommend to a creative friend. It could be a book or a tool, um, an app, a website, anything like that. So um, so we'll count that as one. But you have another another thing that you're just really thinking is you know, fun. When it comes to the fun stuff in my life, um, we've been building a house for over a year. And so that's been kind of my focus. So I don't have a really good recommendation other than to tell you this. I binge watch shows when I get an opportunity to actually put my face in front of either a computer Netflix or a television Netflix or, you know, Amazon Prime or whatever it may be. I binge watch and I love, love, love well-produced things. So if I was to give you my short list of series Mm -hmm, to binge watch, 
I would put Breaking Bad pretty much at the top of the list. Okay. And some people would go, you have got to be kidding me. But the truth is, even though I think the subject matter is horrible and there's not one single character to connect with, meaning nobody to like because mm-hmm. they're all bad guys, right. even the good guys are bad guys. It is fabulous production and wonderfully put together. And then um, I love Game of Thrones because I love fantasy. I've always enjoyed the fantasy world. And Game of Thrones is so wonderfully produced, even though it's complex. It's fabulous. I enjoyed the Vikings for the same reason. And Outlander, the series Outlander, has been fabulous. So I really enjoy those kinds of things. And... uh, I don't get to do many books, although when I am doing a book, it's probably an audio book, and it's while I'm working in my studio because I can certainly listen and work, but I'm not one to usually sit down with the book and just try to devour it when I know I've got other things in my life I need to pursue. And I know you love Hamilton, as do I. Oh, oh my God. OMG. Well, see, <laughs> the thing about Hamilton is, yes, it's on the top of all of my list. How yes. can I not say Hamilton that? is absolutely wonderful. And I've seen you. Uh, there was a little video clip, I think, on Facebook at one point of you singing in your car. And I, I do the same I thing. I singing <laughs> to the opening song of Hamilton. Go find that out there. I will tell you, yes, it is the best piece of entertainment literary ever in the history of ever. My it's gosh, I agree. I've seen it twice on oh Broadway. My God, I'm so jealous. I'm and so jealous. I saw, oh, wonderful. I saw the original cast oh. uh, about six weeks before Lin-Manuel Miranda left. Oh, lucky you. I for that ticket than I've ever paid for a ticket for anything and will never regret it. Was it was worth every dollar. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> it's Hamilton. Oh my God, I can't wait to see it again. Yes, and it, it's absolutely fabulous in every way. So uh, we agree on that 100%. So, well, Ricky Timms, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Sheen Apps podcast. It was really fun talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been fabulous chatting with you. And to everyone out there who took time to listen, I just wish you the best of everything that life can give you. And just pursue your heart, your dreams, and your passion with absolute uh, unstoppable, um, I don't know what the next word would be, but just do it because that's what life is all about. Amen to that. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by How to Make It, a book by Chronicle Books. This holiday season, gift the creatives you know, yourself included, with a book that offers as much practical advice as it does inspiration. Says Publishers Weekly about how to make it, readers curious about starting a creative business will find these 25 interviews with artisans, an entertaining introduction to the challenges and rewards of turning art into a livelihood. To learn more, visit www.chroniclebooks.com. Thank you so much, Chronicle Books. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time.